You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Peter um, will be there if it kills us or until God returns, I suppose. We're, we're just now getting through um, the first half of 1 Peter chapter 1. There's been so much there. And as we continue there, and I hope you've been dwelling on this a little bit as we've been preaching on it on Sundays, but also that you're taking it with you and telling other people what you've learned on Sunday. That's the best way to receive something from the Lord and to keep it from yourself just makes you into the Dead Sea. You'll be full of great value and wealth, gold and minerals and salts and everything, but it's dead because it never produces. It's got billions of dollars of wealth, but it never pours out. But the Sea of Galilee, fresh water coming in, fresh water coming out, fish in it, um, uh, big fisheries there. There's all kind of orchards and all kind of things like that around it because it's alive. It has living water pouring in and living water pouring out. So I pray that you're like the Sea of Galilee and not the Dead Sea. You're receiving the word. You go away glad and you tell others about the hope that's within you. I think the biggest idea there of that first part that we've seen is that in verse 5 where it says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I think understanding what it means to be kept is so crucial for us in this age of doing whatever we feel is right and uh, it's led to a culture we have a very narcissistic culture to be a narcissist is just uh, the easiest way to describe it is with one word and that's selfie everything that we do it needs to be on instagram and facebook and all the different modes of of that where you take a picture of yourself and everything that you're doing and everybody's supposed to bow the knee and see how great you are and what what a great life you have and so on but um it's, it has messed us up. This age of narcissism is greater than maybe any culture there ever was except maybe the Grecian Empire way, 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 way back or maybe even the, the early German Empire where it was gaining its wealth again there right before World War II. And it's just caused this terrible um, it's a problem with immorality and uh, materialism, secularism. And it's even flowed into Christians where it's made Christians very weak and... Um, Though we say we know the Savior, we don't act like we're kept by him. We go the way that we want to go and so on. So we like the idea of freedom in Christ, um, but what we really are saying when they, we say that, it's um, we want to do what feels good to our flesh while having this hope of salvation in the future when we die. We won't go to the fiery pit. And that's what we mean by freedom in Christ. I dare say, and I've told you this before, um, those that came out of the wilderness, came out of Egypt into the wilderness, that never rejected the Baal worship will not be in heaven. They were God's chosen people, yes. But he says that they hardened their hearts as in the day in the wilderness, and they never would repent. They kept trying to hold on to these things of Egypt and carry them with them, and God is not going to share his glory with Baal. And so you say, well, I don't worship Baal. If you worship the things of the earth, if your whole life is being satisfied by the things of earth, um, then, sorry, that's what you're doing if uh, secularism or, or sensuality or whatever the thing is that traps you, if that's a greater thing of importance to you than the high and holy Father God of the universe of all creation and his son Jesus Christ, well then I'm sorry, you better check yourself and see if you're of the faith. So it's very important, we desire to be kept, but like stubborn children, we generally only desire his care after we've gotten ourselves into a bad spot by our own sinful behavior and then we say, well, why doesn't God hear me when I pray? Or why hasn't God acted in this way? When you got yourself in there and you're expecting him to get you out and you would be much better to be kept by him the entire time 
and him maintain your path and him direct your steps and him being the God who goes before who he is. But for him to go before, that means you got to get behind. And so you need to be following him and, and what he's doing. And it's really just a terrible doctrine that's, that's taken over our culture, even in Christianity, that the Lord should just make me happy. Whatever it is that I want to do that makes me happy, he should do that for me. And they got a saying for it, man, you do you, man. Whatever, whatever you do, you do you. I'm going to do me, you do you. And it's just, um, it's completely rebellious against God, and it's completely contrary to the Scriptures. So be careful. I wanted to, a lot of people have asked me this week, they've either sent me texts of the Asbury Revival, or, or, or they've asked me questions about what I think about it. So here's what I think. Here's what I'm going to tell you. So apparently... It's not just going on there, but there's another uh, similar revival, maybe not to the same extent, going on at Cedarville, which I suppose is Baptist. I, it's up, uh, it's up in Ohio. What was the guy? What was the pastor's name that was from? You remember? Paul Dixon was the president there, and he used to come down here, and uh, in the off season there, and he'd preach at Central some. Good man, good song, strong preaching going on there. Very conservative, and I would say it's a Baptist college if I was guessing. Asbury is uh, Methodist. And in Lee University over here is basically Assemblies of God, and they're having a revival to some extent very similar. It was kind of interesting. A guy named Dutch Sheets, who's a very Pentecostal-type guy, he had a, a vision or a prophecy here maybe a month ago that there would be a revival come to young people. It's just interesting that he would have said that, and then this seemed to be coming together. Um, and, and may I say, I haven't been to any of these revivals. So, uh, you know, I don't want to be talking about things out of school that I don't know about. But from what I gather, um, a, a main aspect about these revivals, particularly the one there in, um, in uh, that Asbury College in, in Kentucky, um, is it's, there's, a, there's uh, and I don't want you to take this as a negative thing, okay? It's young people, so it's, uh, they're now limited to people under 25 to come in there because they're trying to keep people from hijacking it or putting some other dimension on it. The college professors and so on are kind of trying to lead and direct in that and try to keep them in the right path and so on. But it's, large, it's, it's very emotional, but they're young people, so that's to be expected. A lot of music, some praying, and limited teaching. And that's the only thing that's got me a little nervous about it. Um, but there was, a, there was a revival there in 1970, and I heard an interview of a man, and he was talking about being there as a student in 1970 and then going back now He's a professor or a grandfather of one of the kids there or something. And so he had access to it now. And he said since 1970, after the revival of 1970, there was a lot of fruit that was produced in the town. And these students were coming to town and they were going to uh, different uh, stores and stuff. It seems kind of crazy that they would be stealing things, but apparently they were uh, kiping stuff from the stores. And they were going back to these stores and apologizing, re being repentant before the store owners trying to make things right. So there was, there was fruit demonstrated in their lives by a change of direction of their heart. By being saved, they were going to act in a different way. They were going to reconcile with you know, what they could with what they had done that was sinful and so on like that. And they really did see a kind of a town-wide, region-wide revival during that day. And, uh, and so that's one thing. If I could say, like, let's watch it. I haven't been there, and I know some people are going up there, and I'm, you know, I'll, I'll wait and see what they say. Um, but the first thing is, is let's look for the fruit in any revival. We want to see fruit. I'm not judging them in what they're doing. I want you to understand that in Amos chapter eight, it says that there'll be a, uh, there'll be a famine 
of the word of God in the land in that day. In the future day, there's going to be a famine of the word of God. So we want to make sure, as we're watching those things, and we're desiring revival, that we want to see the word of God preached. And it's really important to be revived means to be made alive again. And so in, in a revival in general, in the, in the revivals that have come in our culture over the last, say, 200 years, um, since the time of, of the regional newspaper or radio or now the internet, um, there's been two things that have been really key, and one has been prayer beforehand, and the second is news spreading, and that news spreads that an expectation of something happening is happening over here. So these are not, these are not scriptural necessarily. They are just the reality of revivals in the U.S. in the last, say, 200 years. But uh, the staff... And the people from the revival of 1970 at this Asbury College have been praying since 1970 till today. 53 years, right, more or less. I'm not really good at math, but, you know, 70 to 23. It's around 53 years, more or less. So for 53 years, these people have been praying to see a revival come, and now they're seeing the fruit of their prayer. Um, so way back in 1741, one of my favorite preachers, uh, Jonathan Edwards, I never heard him preach personally, um, but 1741, he wrote this, Marks of a True Revival. Let me get my uh, bionic eyes. I had to write it on the side there. Um, number one is that Jesus is exalted. Number two, the Holy Spirit acts against the influence of Satan's kingdom by preaching sin and repentance. Number three, the Bible is exalted and held in high regard. Number four, sound doctrine is preached taught and promoted and number five love uh, for god and man is promoted so jesus is exalted holy spirit working against the power of satan preaching sin and repentance bible exalted and held in high regard sound doctrine preached taught and promoted and love for god and neighbor is promoted so christians i know that christians i know that you i know that i we desperately want to see a revival of our culture of people in our town, in our time, in our town, now, today. We want to see it now. But I dare say many of us haven't prayed for 53 years um, for this to come. So we have an expectation of something to come that we've never put any effort in to bring to pass. So God does listen to the, to the cries of his people. He, he saves us our tears in a bottle. It says he saves our prayer that they're a holy um, aroma before him like uh, the, the, the smoke that came up from the, well, the, the box slips my mind there. But the, uh, anyway, from the, um, <laughs> the smoke that rises up from the incense there, that rises up. Thank you, whoever said that. Say it louder because I'm old and deep. Um, yeah, help me, help me help you. You know, help me, yeah. So anyway, that aroma that rises up, he saves that. He's not unaware of our struggles. He's not aware of, unaware of our sorrows. He's not aware, unaware of our depressions, our desires, any of these things. He saves them. He's aware of them. They're sorted. They're put in his holy filing cabinet, and he goes back to them as we, as we pester him with the word. I saw in Isaiah 62, there was one where it talked about, about calling on the Lord and, like, nagging him. Don't stop nagging him. For the things of God that you desire to see come to light, come to fruition in our culture. And so there is a famine of the word of God in these days, in the last days. And uh, there should be fruit produced by these revivals and these students in these places. And I pray that though we really want to see this awakening, 
we, we should be doing. There's a couple things we could be doing to enable the revival at Asbury, the revival at Lee, the revival at Cedarville that don't entail us going there at all. And the first thing is we need to be praying for them. Because one of the first things that happened, I understand, is, uh, uh, I don't want to call them hucksters, but older guys that think they know better than the young and um, emotional, and they're going to try and steer it. They're going to try and put God into a particular frame and direction and make it be this way, because it could only be conservative or you can only be a Republican to be in this revival or something. They're going to put some kind of hand on it and try to direct it. And that's, that's probably not right. They're not a part of it. They haven't prayed in advance for it. They haven't sought the Lord for 53 years on it. Let the ones that have sought the Lord for 53 years direct the, the students, in my opinion. But we could at least be praying for them, at the very least, at the very most. That's part of our job. And part of our job is to watch and pray as well. So if all these revivals are just a bunch of young people getting up and playing their favorite you know, praise and worship song and there's no preaching of the word, well then, it's good, but it's not necessarily of God. But if we see abundant fruit coming from it, then we can say it's good and it's from God. But we're also not the judge of this. People, I listened to this girl and she was being interviewed. She said, um, she was talking about how she had met these different people and how they had been saved. You know, one guy... Uh, some guy was on the street preaching hellfire, and he said he was walking by. He just got terrified, and the guy told him he was a sinner and going to the fiery pit, and the guy got saved. This girl said, I was, another friend had asked her to read the Book of Mormon, and she was reading it. She said, this seems ridiculous. I'm going to compare it to the Bible. Having never read the Bible, she starts reading the Bible, and she gets saved. Um, other people get saved through things like this revival. Because they go, and though it's not their flavor necessarily, they hear the word of God, they see a move of the Spirit, and somehow the Spirit falls afresh on them, and they're saved. And so God's, that we're all saved through faith in Christ. But how we get there, it's really up to Him. I see in the voice of the martyrs where these people have a vision of, of some man, meet this man on the street, and then they find the guy, and, and they're supposed to tell him who Jesus is, and they ask, and he tells them and through a vision, through a prayer, through a dream. I would not try to control the Lord in that, but I pray that these events are followed by repentance, salvation, changed lives, and good works done, the good works done by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Not good works which we have done that save us. That's not what saves us. It's according to His mercy that He saves us. Washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. He does the work. We come, open vessel, He comes and fills us. So anyway, I understand that we need to be praying for these young people that their desire for God is true, um, that they're truly saved, and we need to be praying the disciple makers, that they find disciple makers to help them and take them from babyhood to spiritual maturity. One of the biggest problems of the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s was a lot of those people accepted Christ, either through Billy Graham or other evangelists of that time. Churches were growing, but there wasn't a lot of discipling going on in, in, in many cases. And so people say, well, I got Jesus and that's enough. And in a sense, that's true, but it's not. Because if I got Jesus and that's enough, and it's the Jesus that I make up in my own mind and I've never read the word, I've never, I've never fully understood what it means, I've never um, heard the word preached properly, I've never heard correct doctrines and so on, well, then the Jesus in my mind is different from the Jesus that was on the cross. You know, And so that's a big thing. 
So I, I pray uh, that led to a really weak Christianity, and it hasn't held up over the years. It led to generational weakness in Christianity that we're seeing today with uh, young people that have no need or no desire for God, Christianity, the church, or spiritual things, or religion of any type. It's because these other people were so weak in their, in their uh, life, in their spiritual life, that they didn't pass on these things. And that's what we're going to discover here in Peter, is that we, I want to see revival come to Crossville. I want to see you pray for revival. But I want to see you be prepared to disciple people that are saved and bring them all the way to the throne of grace and teaching them, instructing them in righteousness for his name's sake. Right? Let's see, what does it say? The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marriage, a critic of thoughts and intents of the heart. And then it says, all scripture in Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for doctrine, uh, for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All those things are contained in God's word, and they're all designed to develop you into a man, a woman of God that can be useful to him and not an infant that 30 years after salvation you're as weak spiritually as you were the day you were saved. And so as believers, we need to be prepared in our spirit, in our minds, in our hearts, in our feet shod with the gospel of peace, ready to go and develop others with the gospel so that they can grow spiritually and, and become useful to the kingdom and not just another baby laying on a porch somewhere. Okay, after that, I tell you to go to First Peter. If you got questions or ideas about that, about the thing, if you want to go visit, man, by all means, go um, um, and see. Um, but better for the gospel, for the um, revival to come to Crossville, in my opinion. First Peter. Uh, let's start at verse uh, nine. We've read the first part of First Peter quite a bit there. We'll start at verse 9 and read through 19. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Well, let me read 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Manifest for you. It's exactly what I just said there. I really struggled putting this together for you, but let me reread this 17, 18, and 19. It says, If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, 
verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Very important. So this salvation that the prophets there in 10 and 11, there's talks about a certain salvation that was searched for of the salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand and so on. He, they inquired and searched carefully. This is an idea of these prophets of the Old Testament. They were minors. Um, not minors, like little kids, but minors, like hole diggers. They were sorting the material. And in looking at that, just because these men were inspired by God, even though they had special insight from God, they still dug and peered intently into the old word of God or from prophets that had come before them or spoken before them. And I told you last week, um, remember the kid, remember the giant pencil we had as a kid? You, yeah, they gave you the giant pencil because your little kid hand couldn't hold it good. So you got the giant pencil and you're trying to fill in the thing and then the teacher put her hand over the pencil to help you make the, the letters or your mother did. Um, that's a really good kind of idea uh, for lack of a better way, of how the scriptures were written and carried on. These were inspired. All scripture is God-breathed. Uh, I, I would tell you the word in Greek, theo... Well, I'm not even going to try it. Theonumatikos, I believe. Something like that. Anyway, it's God-breathed. Pneuma, like from the, from the lungs, like pneumatic, like pneumonia, pneuma. It's coming from the, the breath it came from God. It's God's very essence. All scripture, it says. So there's not a scripture in the Bible that is not directed by the breath of God. However, it came through men. And we can find a couple verses there in, in uh, um, Second Peter and one in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, it talks about how holy men of God brought the word. And these prophets, they brought it from the time past and they brought it to today. But they dug through they searched the word diligently. They were careful with the word. They were really looking closely. They were looking to see who this Savior was. And even with revelation, they required study and, and survey, meditation and prayer. For many of these prophecies had a double meaning, and this was the hard part for them. One was the meaning that related to the people that were right there in that time. And the other was the part where God's hand was on top of their pencil and he was writing about the Savior that was to come. The time he was to come, what he was to look like, where he would come from, and so on like that. And their, but their ultimate design was given through God's breath into their finger to write it out um, in order to design the person and the sufferings in the kingdom of Christ to come in the Old Testament. And people get tied up about why do you preach from the Old Testament a lot or, or whatever. But I'm going to tell you, the Old Testament is the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. That If you're preaching from the New Testament, you're, you're preaching from a, um, what do you call it? When you get your arm cut off? It's a, huh? Yeah, it's a prosthetic, but uh, amputated. You're teaching from an amputated Bible. If you just take the New Testament without the Old, you're preaching from an amputated Bible. You've cut off the meat. The New Testament is the, is the confession. It's the concordance. It's the, it's the descriptor of the Old Testament. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. 
when he talks about himself. He said, I came not to abrogate the law, but to complete the law. Not one jot, not one tittle, not the apostrophe mark of the law. The Old Testament will be put away. Not one part of it. I came to complete the law. I'm what the law looks like walking around in the flesh. This is what it looks like. If you could keep all of the Old Testament perfectly, it would look like me walking around and you're getting to see it. And they're like, oh, I don't believe it. <laughs> and then Peter and Paul, the things that they're quoting is not from the New Testament. There's a very few quotations of New Testament verses in the New Testament. There might be a quote like Paul says, Peter says. But for the most part, they're quoting the Old Testament. They're either quoting the Old Testament or they're quoting Jesus who's quoting the Old Testament. And that's just how it is. So you better know the Old Testament. The Old Testament completed in the new with Christ, but it's important to know the old. These prophets of old, they dug through the Old Testament looking for the Messiah. They found him in Psalm 22. They found him in Isaiah 53. They found him in Isaiah 55. They found him there. And these prophets were excited with the prospect of mercy that was going to be shown to those that followed them. We don't give the prophets enough glory. We don't need to be like the Catholics where we're praying to the St. Christopher or St. Alphonsus or whatever. But we need to be recognizing people and give honor to who honors do. These prophets dug it up for you so that you could have an understanding of who Christ is. They didn't just keep it for themselves. They didn't just keep it for the Jews, but they kept it for you, the Gentile, if you're not a Jew here. Um, they kept it for the Gentile. And so we were yet to be born, but these guys saw it as very important that they discover who Christ is, where he's coming from, what he's going to look like, what we should be aware of, how we could prepare for him better. And then when he shows up, even though the prophets had done that, the Jews looked at it and they'd been so distorted by the Pharisees that they were unable to see him in his glory right there, his first time there on earth. So anyway, those that were never met, those that these prophets never met were going to have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. And this was a thrilling hope that gave them a lot of energy as they're writing this. They wanted to hear from God. They didn't want to write things that were contrary to God's will or his desire for men. They wanted to be really careful in writing it down. And then there was those scriptures in the Old Testament talking about the discipline that was due to a prophet. He was to be put to death. If he proclaimed a prophecy and it didn't come true, good, good for old Dutch sheets that they actually had a young people revival, we'd have to go over there and rope him, right? Because he prophesied there'd be a revival of, of young people. I don't listen to him overly. I just happen to know that he said that. But... Um, it, you know, when you, when you prophesy, you better be very careful that it was from the Lord, and then you better be watching to see it come true. But some of these prophets, too, the prophecy didn't come 200, 400, 1,000, 1,500 years later. From the time of Isaiah and, and Isaiah 53 to Christ, it's like 700 years. It's a long time not to see it come. But it has come, and we can look back at Isaiah and say, he was a true prophet. We can count on his word, and it was solid. I was just thinking about this, the effort that these guys put in, these men of God, prophets of God, uh, that they put in, um, what, they, what they were trying to do is they were wanting it to be very clear and understandable how a fallen man could have access to God. These guys were the, they were putting together the cliff notes. You know what cliff notes are? That's the shortcut notes for dummies. That's what I would have to use. If I went to school, I'd have to use the cliff notes. Uh, I mean, they, this is the, the shortcut, right? You know, you look at um, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's a huge book. Or, 
or uh, one of those old, uh, any old Shakespeare's plays. But then the cliff notes is like this. It's like a quarter inch thick and the pages aren't that big and it's not that small a writing. And it's got all of Shakespeare's thing in this one little pamphlet, you know. And that's what these guys were trying to do. They were trying to make it simple for us to understand what it meant to be saved, what it meant to be redeemed, what it meant to be restored to the Father, reconciled to the Father. And they, they went out of their way um, of trying to counter. And then meanwhile, you got the Pharisees over here trying to make it harder to find the Father. And then these prophets are like, man, he's, he's close by. He's near. They say words like that. He's close by. And to seek him. And they were just trying to help us answer the question of how can I find peace with God? So, so read the Old Testament. Man, read Isaiah. You can't go wrong with Isaiah. You can't go wrong with uh, the Psalms. I, I really like the Psalms. I know I've been I'm pushing that on Sunday mornings in the, in the Bible study time there before church. But, but the fact that David continually says, my God, and then sometimes he says, your God, but oftentimes he says, my God, a very personal knowledge of God and his love for him. He has a conversation with him. And he says, I want to be face to face with him, with my God. And I think a lot of us, we have my God, but he's very distant. We don't have an understanding of him as my God, like from even me to Alva. But he's my God. He's right here. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Got to get close. Get close to him, close to his presence. His presence is not Dale. His presence is his presence. It's personal with him. I can tell you what I can tell you about him, but you don't have the relationship with him that you want trying to access it through me. You, you, we have Christ as the mediator. The shepherd, he shepherds the people that are here. That's all I can do is the best I can do to shepherd you here. But the presence of God is revealed in the person of Christ. Go to Christ, and he'll draw you to the presence of the Father, and he'll indwell you with his spirit. It's really interesting, it goes, goes on to that in 11, searching what, or what manner of time, the spirit of Christ who was in them, the spirit of Christ was handling the pen of the prophet. Did you ever see that one before, Alva? <laughs> it says, what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, searching what or what manner of time. They're not just looking for the Messiah. They're looking for his arrival. And it's through the working of Jesus Christ, through the hand of the prophet as he writes the thing. Remember Jeremiah? He writes a particular prophecy for the king at that time. The king is so corrupt that as he reads the pages, Baruch is his sidekick. He sends Baruch over there to, to, uh, to give the testimony to the king. And the king hates the word that Jeremiah says. And he tears it up. He reads the page. He tears that page up, throws it in the fire. Reads him another page. He tears it up, throws it. So what does Jeremiah do? He goes back and it says he writes the same thing again. How do you write the same thing again? Because all scripture is God breathed. And he breathes it out in Jeremiah's pen. Uh, pen. Jeremiah writes it down again. Hey, king. Stop being a dummy. Repent. Save the people. And the king's like, and he throws it in the trash again. He does it three times. Jeremiah writes it out three times. And it's the same every time. Surely he kept a copy. Maybe he wrote it four times, so he had a copy. But uh, he, uh, 
It's bad, man, when they tear up your only copy, but since it's breathed out by God, it's easy enough to keep because he'll restore it to his pen the next time he needs to write it. Moses bringing down the Ten Commandments and in frustration throws them on the ground. The first of the Ten Commandments, Jewish tradition says, as he held them up, it was like it was laser cut in the stone. This is Jewish tradition, so be with that what it is. But he's holding them up and it was like you could see through the letters, but that the letters read the same on the front as they did the back. So it didn't matter if you were looking at the law from the front or if you were looking at it from behind, it read the same. And it's those that Moses broke. And the second time, Moses had to carve them out. But they were the same because the same God that gave them to him the first time was the same God that gave them to him the second time. It was the same. It's amazing. All scriptures God breathed. The prophets weren't making these prophecies up. They were indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ was working through the pen of the prophet to make it wrote down. And then the second thing is they wanted to know the time. They wanted to know the day of his arrival so that they could be better prepared for it. And if they weren't there, they want it written down in a way so that you could be prepared for it. These guys gave their lives so that we could know what the Spirit of Christ said to the prophets. That's amazing. We don't give them enough credit, I don't believe. So, Isaiah 52 and 53 is a good example, that description of, of the coming death of Christ. Uh, he doesn't call him the Christ, of course, in the Old Testament, he would be the Messiah, Mashiach. Anyway, he comes, he's coming, however the vision was that Isaiah had that he writes it down, that he's able to describe those things. Or Psalm 22 is another one where it talks about his hands and feet being pierced, being hung up, um, bartering for his clothing and things like that. There's so many different little personal items there that they wouldn't have known. This is 700 to 1,000 years before Christ comes in the flesh and moves among men. It's way before that. How do they know these things? Because the breath of God is writing through the pen of Isaiah is writing through the pen of David, is writing through the pen of the sons of Korah. And that's how it happens. It's, it's, and I'm trying to express myself as best I can, but um, it's just been very revelatory to me because I knew that the prophets had the hand of God on their hand, um, but this twofold work of writing, both of the current event that's happening right there that they're writing about, but then also the future event of Christ coming that's going to happen and it's going to be like the prophecy that they wrote. That's going to apply to the king of Tyre, but also to Lucifer, the, the shining one that fell, you know, in Ezekiel. It's just amazing how they, how they did that. And what it tells me is that the Bible is inspired by God. It's not the writings of men. You can trust God's word because it's God's word. It's not man's word that wrote down what they thought God thought. It's all scripture is breathed out by God. And we've got to remember that. Um, they wrote down the words out of obedience, but also out of searching the words of the Old Testament, making sure that it was right, out of reverence, and so on. Second uh, Peter one twenty one it says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And in Second Peter three two and three one it says, Beloved, I write to you, he's just so you know who he's writing to that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, 
the apostles of the Lord and Savior. These guys, even Peter, even uh, Paul, they knew that what they were writing down was spiritually correct because the Lord was working through them and they knew that it couldn't be of their own ability. It was greater than their ability to produce. Psalm um, 119, you know, it's, it's the longest uh, chapter there in the Bible. So each group of those, each sub-chapters in Psalm, so Psalm 119 is very long and it has these sub-chapters, so to speak, and each one of those start with an individual Hebrew letter. Then each sentence in each one of those starts with that same Hebrew letter. Just like in English, if you had to start 10 sentences in a row with the letter X, you'd be doomed. They got letters that are hard to start sentences with. You got me? And yet somehow God worked through the writer to make this puzzle, this acrostic puzzle of Psalm 119, and it comes out beautiful, and it portrays the same idea from Psalm 119.1 all the way through Psalm 119.175, I think is the last verse there. It's very long, but it's, it, this puzzle works out perfectly. It didn't come by the hand of men. Men aren't that smart. Even smart men aren't that smart. They can't do it. I saw in Hebrews 9, verse 9, it says, it was symbolic for the present time. It was talking about things of the temple. And it was, it was that same picture where it just says, this happened in this time. They, they have the tabernacle, and that was the very best representation that man could produce of things that were in heaven and produce it on earth with the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, and the different items of furniture in there and the, and the Ark of the Covenant and the different tables and the showbread and all those things. They were just a picture as best as God put it in that one man who designed all those things and he did it as best he could to, to make an exact representation of the heavenlies. It was just the best he could do in his manly form. But when Christ came, he was all those things in a perfect form, the perfect image of God among men. And these guys were doing the best they could to write it out, to demonstrate it out, to demonstrate what the God in heaven was doing on earth among men. And so we have the result of all these prophets searching. And this is the, here's the, what I want you to catch for today as best you can. And it starts in Acts 17. And it talks about this certain group of people who I've told you about before, the Bereans. So they're going to these different towns and when they get to, to Berea, these people were willing to listen. But they weren't willing to accept what was said unless they searched the scriptures diligently themselves. Acts 17, verse 10. The brethren went, uh, went immediately, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So it's an area. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness. They listened carefully, took notes, and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. They were searching the scriptures daily. So this is the key thing for us to be reminded of. Because it says, um, especially in spiritual things, for us to be searching the scriptures Verse 10 again in First Peter, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time was indicating. They searched carefully. So, so often when we read the scriptures, we read them out of 
habit or road or there's a, you're doing a little devotional, it's got a little a single line of scripture, something on the top of the page, and you read that and you and you're like, okay, that's the verse of the day, you know, go and sin no more. Whatever your one is, you know, Jesus wept, whatever the little scripture is. It's really short, and then they got a little pithy, you know, story about the scripture and how you're supposed to be good that day and not, you know, flip off the guy in the car beside you or whatever you're supposed to do that day. And that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us to search the scripture in spiritual things. And here's what you're supposed to be searching for. The Messiah. From Genesis to Revelation, you search for the Messiah in the scriptures and what he's directing, what he's telling you to do. And then do that. It's easy. It's the whole Forrest Gump thing all over again. I've told you a hundred times. What's your major job here, Gump? Do whatever it is you tell me to do. You must be a genius. Read the Bible and do what God tells you to do. And you can't go wrong. Every time, you'll look like a genius. A majority of the things that we know we know because someone we trust told it to us and we accepted it because we trusted them. But in regards to spiritual things, we must be extraordinarily careful to read the Bible, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Correctly understanding God's word of truth, reading yourself God's word and saying, this is right. I listen to what the pastor tells me and then I go home and I open the book after I took some notes or I have a brilliant memory and can remember them all, and then I go back and see if what he tells me lines up with what the book says. And if it does, I accept it as truth. And if it doesn't, I reject what he says until I can discover or discern whether or not what he says was truth. I want to make sure that what I'm reading, what I'm doing, how I'm living as a believer is the truth. Can't go wrong with that. We should be more like Isaiah, wanting to know the time of God's arrival and then the best way to greet him when he comes. There's, he's coming again. We're going to come and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord according to God, God the Father. You're going to bow the knee either as a believer or as an unbeliever. As an unbeliever, you're going to bow the knee with the sword hanging over your neck. And as a believer, you're going to have the sword on each shoulder saying, rise, good and faithful servant. It's really up to you how you receive the Lord and to con kind of conclude the whole thing there, go to uh, verse 13. As, as we search the scriptures, these things develop an ability in us to live as believers. Verse 13 in Peter, sorry, 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's things that as Christians we're commanded to do and, uh, and, and it comes, starts here and it goes all the way through 19, but, and we'll start here probably next week. But the things that we're commanded to do is we're to gird up the loins of our mind. That means hike your pants up, brace yourself, and take courage in, in face of the trials that, that you're going to be called to go through. It says be sober. That means to live righteously. It says to rest your hope fully upon the grace and salvation of Christ. It says to not live according to your former life of sin. Um, he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, verse 15. It says, pass, your, uh, uh, pass the time of your stay here in fear, verse 17, and then love one another fervently with a pure heart. So as we get ready, we're going to sing a song. What's our song again? I forgot. Uh, Standing on the Promises of God. As we get ready to sing this song, these questions I want to ask you is this. Do you want to see revival in our day, in our town, 
here? And if so, what do we do to prepare the way of the Lord? Are we willing to pray for 53 years to see revival in Crossville? Are we, re- are we prepared to pray for 53 days or 53 minutes? I mean, at this point, I'd settle for the 53 minutes. 5.3 minutes, I'd settle for that. Start somewhere in preparing the way of the Lord. Are you diligently searching the Scriptures? I, I was reading, and I was just thinking about this, what part will you personally play in bringing the gospel to the future generations? These guys are dead in the grave. Their skeletons are even skeletons. I mean, they're rotted. There's nothing left. You're not going to find Isaiah's skeleton. It's long gone. But his words, written down, the very words of life, have brought the word of life to you that you could be saved. What are you going to do to produce the gospel for the next generations? And so be a prophet, be a Berean, be a miner, and the Lord will bring the revival. Let's sing this song together, and we'll have a time of prayer after that. Uh, Really, maybe we'll have, are you wanting us all to sing? Yes. Okay, we're all going to sing. Then I have a, then we'll have a uh, invitation, okay? Let's sing this song together. Standing on the promises of God. And let's stand together, because we're standing. Standing on the promises of Christ my King Through eternal ages let His praises ring Glory in the highest I will shout standing. I pray that your heart is committed to the word that was spoken. I want to give you an opportunity if you've never accepted Christ that today could be the day of your salvation. Many of us go, we come in here, we hear the word, we go away and we forget it. But while you're here, you're already pricked in spirit. Come. Come to the altar. Pray. Ask God to give you the spirit to pray. The spirit of prayer. Ask him to give you that faith that you desire. And he'd show mercy to you.